Let me share with you some food for thought this morning on the state of American religion. It's interesting. I shared this with our Sunday evening crowd a few weeks ago, so if you were there for that, these will be familiar to you. From the Associated Baptist Press, just simply about our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, just some interesting numbers. Southern Baptist Conventions are down by 100,000 uh, baptisms in the last 12 years. Now, baptism is an outward sign of an inward transformation. I'm actually going to be preaching on that next week, and we'll have an opportunity. Uh, we'll be baptizing, as far as I know, at least one person next week. And if others are interested in that and following Jesus uh, by being baptized as a public sign of your inward transformation. I'd love to speak with you about that. And certainly would be open. Baptism is simply a way that we can see that folks are coming to know Jesus Christ when they obey Him to be baptized. It is an outward sign of an inward transformation. And in our denomination, it's a great sign that folks are being reached for the gospel. And so we're down by 100,000 in the last 12 years. Baptism rates in Southern Baptist churches are at the lowest mark in 64 years. Our heyday is long gone. 2012 baptisms fell by 5.5% from the previous year. And since 1972, the rates on Southern Baptist Convention baptisms have been plateaued. There's been no real growth whatsoever. And baptisms have declined in six out of the last ten years. That's sort of where we stand as a denomination, of course, our church being a part of that. From the Pew Forum on Religious Research, some interesting numbers beyond our denomination. 28% of adults in America have left the faith in which they were raised, either for some other religion or for none at all. 28%. 25% of people that are ages 18 to 29, part of the reason we have Racer Day is to focus on that particular segment of the population, 25% of people ages 18 to 29 have no religious affiliation at all. They're called the nuns when they select not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. When they select their religious affiliation, they check none. I don't have one, they say. 25% of people in that age group. Among the religiously unaffiliated across the board of all ages, 30% of those in America who claim no religious affiliation at all, 30% are under age 30. And 71% are under age 50. From Lifeway Research, in light of all of those numbers, you would think that Christians would be mobilizing themselves and getting serious about doing something about it. But here's what we find from Lifeway Research. 80% of churchgoers don't read their Bibles. 80%. 61% of evangelical Christians fail to share their faith on a regular basis. You know what the word evangelical stems from? Evangelism. We claim that we are evangelists, small evangelists spread out all over the place, and yet 61% fail to do that on a regular basis. Only 21% of evangelical Christians say that they pray every day for the spiritual status of non-Christians. 20% say they never pray for that spiritual status of a non-Christian. Now, we're clearly falling behind. That paints a really, really sad picture about the state of evangelical faith in America. We're clearly falling behind, and nowhere more evident, I think, than when we look at children and youth and college students, our young people. God's people have been failing, unfortunately, and I say we because I include myself. I'm not here to throw stones. We are failing in His mission, and we have been for several decades. We may not even be knowing it, that we are. 
But the time has come for us to do something. And for us to partner once again with God to see Him turn things around. Now I'll tell you what won't work. Alright, I'm going to just be up front. What's not going to work is the same old, same old. Just doing the same stuff week in and week out and grinding away at, at the same stuff that churches have been doing for years and years and years and years. It's not going to work anymore. You all know that. You don't do the same things that you used to do. You're different than you were, and that's just the way things are. The same old, same old is not going to work. I'll tell you what else won't work, and that is what used to work of hanging up a sign. Essentially, here we are, and if people need us, they know where to find us. It used to be in communities like Murray and Callaway County, and many of you remember this, that most folks went to church. Do you know what now? Most folks, even in our great community, don't go to church. Most folks aren't angry with the church. They simply disregard it completely. They just don't give it another thought. And so we can't simply hang up a sign and say, here we are, this wonderful church that we are, and if people need us, they'll find us. They're not even looking for us. What won't work also is getting angry. You know what's real easy is to get mad at those people that are out there somewhere not going to church, and they ought to be in church. Well, maybe they ought to be in church, but you know what? They're not. And getting angry at them certainly isn't going to do anything. You ever had somebody get angry at you for how you are? How often do you listen to that person? You ever had a lecture from mom? Okay, just sit there and take it. Then you get up and you do what you want to do, don't you? Dad comes down hard on you, you just move on. What it takes is not getting angry at people for not knowing Jesus or for not going to church. That's not going to work. And certainly we know that doing nothing won't work. It's not an option. Doing nothing is not an option. We have clear directives in Scripture that we must be doing something. So doing nothing or getting angry or just hanging up a sign and saying we're here if they need us or the same old, same old, that stuff's not going to work. Now, let me tell you what will work. Number one, what will work isn't all the stuff in my brain that I think we ought to be doing. That's not where we start. Where we don't start is all the stuff in your brains. We think, well, let's try this and let's try that. That's not where we start. Maybe God will give us great ideas. But I believe what will work is learning and doing whatever it takes to reach our rising generations. We've got to learn it. Do you, do you sometimes feel ignorant on how to handle stuff like this? Do you think, I don't know where to start? If that's you, then come sit in my office one day, and we'll sit there together and look at one another and say, I don't know where to start, because that's a lot of what I do, and think, Lord, give me wisdom. I don't know where to start with this. But we've got to learn. And then once we learn, we, we've got to do whatever it takes. And I literally mean whatever it takes. Biblically, of course to reach our rising and to retain our rising generations. We've got to pray like we've never prayed before. We, we again, can't just by default expect people who are just going to join in and, and get involved in church and come to know Jesus. We've got to pray like never before. We, we've got to humble ourselves and repent. As individual churches, as, as Christians, we, we've got to repent and say, Lord, we've failed. We've not been willing to do whatever it takes, and myself included. What it will also... What will also work is, is an idea that many people working together is better than many people watching one or a few people work on the problem. I really believe we've got lots of folks, even in our churches, I've talked with you, who are just revving their engines, sitting there almost on neutral, saying, let's go, let me do something. I think we've got a lot of folks ready to get involved. I look forward to that. We've got to apply what I believe and what I want to talk with you about this morning. We've got to apply an old mission to a new school year. 
As we celebrate Racer Day today, the beginning of school, of course, it's already started for our public schools here, the high schools, middle schools, elementary. But recently, of course, this week, Murray State starts. So as we celebrate that, I want us to apply an old mission to a new school year. I believe this is what we must recapture as we focus on children's ministry, on youth ministry, on collegiate ministry. And I'll be honest with you, for our entire church, I would love to see us focus and recapture this kind of purpose. Where we find that old mission is directly from the Scripture itself. I'm not going to come up with anything today that God has not already said that we should be doing. I believe one of the mistakes we make is we try to change and alter and improve upon what God has already said, and there's no way you can do that. And so let's simply go to the Scripture. We see this old mission all over the book of Acts in the New Testament, and I want to focus this morning on one example from Acts chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible handy, or if you've got a phone or a tablet... Whatever you brought, however you can access the Scripture this morning, get to Acts chapter 8. On the back of your bulletin, you'll see a way you can follow along. If you're a note taker, we've provided some spark for you there. You can do that. There's a code you can scan and go to our online notes link. However you can get to the Scripture this morning, please get there and let's look at what it says. In Acts chapter 8, let me kind of catch you up to speed as you're getting there. What you have is really the beginning of the church that's happened through the book of Acts. And early in that book, and of course late in the book of Matthew, Jesus has given the apostles, these disciples, a great mission. He said, you're going to make disciples, you're going to be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. I mean, there's no limit to what God is going to do through them. And so what we've seen so far is that's beginning to happen. Now, we looked at the beginning of chapter 8 a few weeks ago in our series called Character Assassination. You remember a guy named Simon who wanted the special power that the apostles had, and he was willing to pay money for it. What we saw in that story was the guy who really got all of that started, a man named Philip, who was an evangelist, went to the Samaritans at the beginning of chapter 8, wins a lot of them to Jesus, and this movement begins. And so he's preaching at the first part of this. To the Samaritans. The story continues today with him witnessing and talking about Jesus in a divine appointment with a stranger. And look with me, verse 25. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. So that kind of wraps up. Here's Philip's ministry to the Samaritans. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Some of your versions will add, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. So there's an interruption there in his ministry. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to the desert, to desert Gaza. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, told Philip, go up and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself? Or another person. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning 
from that scripture. What I want you to notice first about Philip in this story and some lessons that we'll learn from him and build on this idea of why do we exist as believers and as a church. I believe we get a a microcosm of that here in chapter 8. The first thing I want you to notice about Philip is that he is reactive to God and he's then proactive toward a certain man. Look in verse 26 again. An angel spoke, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. What does he say? Get up and go south. Look at verse 27. So he got up and went. I love the way the scripture put it. Get up and go south. So he got up and went. The Lord sends an angel to say, Philip, this is what I want you to do. Get up and go south. So Philip got up and went. The path he was to take was down this desert road. A road really not traveled very much. A road maybe he knew something about, maybe he didn't. But we don't have any record of any questions, any complaints, any hesitation. God said to do something, and Philip did it. There's some great lessons we can learn there. Let me give you a little bit of background on Philip to kind of make, help you understand why maybe he was so reactive to God. He's not the Philip that's listed among the 12 disciples. Not that Philip. Different guy. In fact, the first time that we see him is in Acts chapter 6, when there are seven men selected. Maybe you know this story. There was a dispute about how this distribution of food was going to be handled for the widows in the church. There were some folks they needed to take care of, and they would bring food and then distribute that. And, and lo and behold, these ladies got a little bit upset. It happens, doesn't it? And so the ladies got upset. Fellas, you know when the ladies get upset, you got to do something. Can't let that simmer because then it just explodes. So the wisdom of these incredible disciples was, let's take care of the ladies because they're not happy. All right, so that's what they do. And they select seven guys. They're going to help settle the dispute. And I would not have wanted to been one of those seven guys to go amongst all these women and start calming them down. But Philip was the guy who could do it. He's one of these seven guys, and they select him because the Bible tells us these guys had good reputations. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They had lots of wisdom. And certainly they were capable of handling leadership and capable of handling a dispute among people who had a problem with what was going on. That's how his ministry starts, as one of these seven guys to help distribute food. Now, his ministry obviously goes beyond what he was initially called to do. As I referenced a few minutes ago in chapter 8, toward the beginning, Philip goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel there, has lots of conversions, people coming to know Jesus. He's a part of lots of signs and miracles. And so the ministry there is both surprising and very legitimate. He does some incredible things. He had obviously proved himself to be a very faithful and proficient minister of the gospel, and God just keeps giving him greater and greater responsibility. You've seen that in people. You've seen them be faithful, and then they get a little bit more. Maybe you work with somebody like that. and they, How in the world did this person get to this position? Well, if you looked at what they did back here, then you'd see that. And that's Philip. God keeps giving him more and more. All of it stems from the fact that he's simply reactive to what God says. He's always obedient to God. Maybe that's the lesson you take away today. <laughs> you want to be God's kind of person, just simply be re- reactive to Him. What He says, you do. And He's given you a whole book, by the way, of what He says. Well, if I could just hear from God. Anyway, as we move on, after the great ministry in Samaria, Philip is called to something else, even though the other guys keep going. Now, I don't know about you, but if I get to be a part of this exciting, God-honoring kind of ministry, and lots of people getting saved, all kinds of exciting things happen, I want to stick around and continue to be a part of that. What does God say to Philip? Go to the desert road. Really? 
God, you're not, I mean, I'm, Samaria, they're, they're all coming to know Jesus. It's great. It's, we're baptizing people left and right. I mean, it's like church plants everywhere. It's really exciting stuff. Why, that, that's where I, I want to be. God calls him to travel down this lonely road to nowhere. And what does he do? He got up and went. I, that's amazing to me. You put it in human terms. These guys are not superhuman. It's amazing to me. And then verse 27, I love what the New American Standard says here, and behold. Now our version that I'm reading from this morning leaves that out. Maybe some of your versions that you're looking at this morning include that. He, he got up and went, and behold. Huh, what do you know? Look, Bible says, there's a man on this road who needs Jesus. Isn't that the way it works a lot? God, that doesn't make any sense. I know it doesn't make any sense because you don't see the guy down the road. Okay, God, I'll get up and go. Have you ever learned that lesson before? God, I don't want to do this. Lord, this is stupid. I know you don't talk to God that way. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're more spiritual. Well, God, this doesn't make any sense. And you go down the path God wants you to get, and you say, oh, my goodness. <laughs> God already had it in mind. He knew what he was doing. You realize that God already knows what he's doing? Novel idea. He's God, the sovereign creator of the universe. He knows exactly what he's doing. And Philip has this divine appointment with his stranger on a road to nowhere. All because he simply was reactive to God and he obeys. And then verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go up and join that chariot. Here's this chariot. And he's got another choice to make. Will I react and be obedient to God's Word and just do what God says right here, even when maybe it doesn't make sense? But that's what he does. He goes up to the chariot. He is reactive to God and then proactive toward this man in the chariot. Philip doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't have the, the parenthetical, by the way, this guy was a high-ranking official in Ethiopia, a guy that maybe if you reach him, you could reach the whole country, Philip. He doesn't know any of that. He just goes up to the chariot because God tells him to go. So we see him being reactive to God's Word. His default answer was always yes to God. Always obedience. No, he didn't know everything. So maybe if you say, well, if I knew exactly how it's going to work out, good grief, I'd do it too. No, he didn't know everything. Yes, it was risky. Well, I'm not sure about that. He wasn't sure about it either. And no, he had never done it that way before. Ever. But interestingly enough, he didn't react to his own fear or maybe his own hesitation, or any laziness that might have been inside of him, or any questions that came to his mind. He didn't react to that stuff. What does he react to? The directives of God. Plain and simple. And because he was reactive to God, now he's proactive toward this man in the chariot. In spite of this desert road that no one goes down anymore, that's where Philip goes to see this man. In spite of the cultural and racial differences, this man was an Ethiopian, Philip was Jewish, there's a difference in skin color. There's a difference in upbringing. There's a difference in background. None of that mattered to him. In spite of the other man's position, once he gets to know him, this guy is a high-ranking official. You know who Philip was? Nobody. He was one of the seven to settle disputes between women and the church. Well, that's nobody back then. Let's be honest. He was a nobody. This guy would have no clue who he is, and yet he doesn't care. He says, I don't care what position, high, low, whatever. This guy needs Jesus, and I'm going toward him. And he ran up uninvited. Isn't it great? Verse 30. When Philip ran up to it, <laughs> he heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah. And then he's proactive. Do you understand what you're reading? Does that make any sense to you at all? 
Back there in those days, they would read aloud. It was just typical of that, so he overheard it. He, he runs up to this chariot uninvited. You know, he gives no excuses. Well, Lord, you know, the chariot's moving. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to have to run. It's be kind of weird. It's kind of awkward. Lord, I don't know this guy. This is crazy anyway. You've got me out here on this road to nowhere, and there's a random chariot I'm supposed to run up to and talk to this guy. I'm not comfortable with this guy. This really is way, way out of my comfort zone. And there's no way this guy is going to give me the time of day anyway. This doesn't make any sense. Lots of excuses could have been had. Could have been had. The first lesson, the first element of why we exist that I want you to get from the fact that Philip is reactive to God and proactive toward this man is that we exist this is not necessarily first, I'll just show you, they're all interconnected, but we exist, we see this first in the story, to engage in relationship with God and others. We exist to engage in relationship with God and others. Philip just displays that. So with God, we must, like Philip, be reactive. When we recognize who God is, you know what our reaction is? Worship. That must be our reaction. When we recognize who God is, our reaction has to be worship. I, I guarantee you this. If you will take opportunity this week to contemplate, maybe from reading the Scripture, maybe from looking at the stars at night, however it is that you need to contemplate who God is and His greatness, I encourage you, it will change your week to simply worship God in response to who He is. What does that mean, you say? Well, maybe you just start talking about how great God is to him. And maybe you'd sing along with a song that praises God and sings to him or about him. Maybe, just maybe, maybe all by yourself, even if you're a little bit uncomfortable, you just simply get on your knees or lift your hands to the Lord and say, God, I submit you are only and you alone are, are only worthy of my worship. You're the only one. We must be reactive to who He is by worship and then reactive to what He says, just like Philip was, through obedience. And then we engage in relationship with others by being proactive. It starts certainly by being friendly, but it doesn't stop there. We're the friendliest small town in America. That's great. I, mean, I think we are. I've been here long enough. I've now spent nine years of my life in Murray. Back when I was in college for four years, friendliest town in America. Loved it. Five years I've been here as your pastor, friendliest small town in America. I love it. But you realize it can't stop there? I mean, that, that is a great starting point. People are just naturally friendly, but it can't stop there. There must be genuine love. We've got to love the people that God loves, even when we've got plenty of reasons not to. There's plenty of reasons not to love people, certainly. And in many cases, I believe it will just simply start with us getting out of our Christian bubble and taking the first step. It's the way that it's going to be. There's an article from Christianity Today that I saw this week that highlights a very disturbing trend. Here's what it says. One out of five non-Christians in North America doesn't know any Christians. Think about that. 20% of the people who are not Christians in our country, in our continent rather, don't know any Christians. Now this is not the Gandhi kind of, well, if I, I would become a Christian if I actually knew one. You know, knew a legitimate one. I, that's, that's not what this article is talking about. They literally don't know any Christians. That's 13.5 million people. That number includes, as this article says, atheists and agnostics, many of whom are former Christians themselves and were likely to have close Christian contacts. Without that group, 60% of non-Christians don't know a Christian. 
Worldwide, the article says, the numbers are much worse. More than 8 in 10 non-Christians don't personally know a Christian worldwide. But Christians make up only a third of the world's population. The United States, meanwhile, ranks in the top 10 in Christian countries with 80% of the population claiming to be Christian. And yet 20% of those who aren't Christians say they don't know any Christians. You see something wrong with that? They highlight the fact that maybe immigration is the biggest factor. People moving in and they just don't know anybody. They're from different faiths and, and, and maybe agnostic, maybe atheist, maybe Buddhist, maybe Muslim, whatever it may be. They move in, they don't know anybody. And so they congregate with their own people naturally, as you would do if you moved somewhere else. But what they say is that just as much as those folks who move in are congregating together, to the same extent are Christians not going to engage them. They're not moving forward. The United States, one researcher is quoted, is a very strategic place for people to interact. It's ironic in a place with all the freedoms to interact that people don't do it. In light of the deficit of contact, what better thing could happen than have a bunch of people move into your neighborhood? America is suffering from a serious deficit of hospitality. Researchers found that relatively small gestures, such as inviting international students into their home for Thanksgiving, can provide a better basis for meaningful interaction than huge mission campaigns. You may not have lots of folks from other countries and other faiths moving into your neighborhood. You may say, that doesn't apply to me at all. But we have an entire campus of young people who don't know Jesus I wonder how many solid Bible-believing evangelical Christians do they know? How many churches are saying, we don't know them, they don't know us, but it's on us to make the first move? Not on them. How many? We exist to engage in relationship with God and others. The story goes on as Philip next talks about the Scripture. Look at verse 29. Spirit told him, go up to that chariot. He runs up to it. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, this guy says, unless somebody helps me? He talks to him about, here's the passage he's reading. This great messianic passage in Isaiah talking about Jesus. And Philip immediately recognizes, Lord, you know exactly what you're doing. You already got this guy to the scripture. And springboard from there is what he does. He's not intimidated by the task. He's not intimidated by the question or this man's ignorance. You know, one of the things that intimidates me most, talking about Jesus, uh, what intimidates me most there is when people have no clue about Him at all. They, they really don't understand. They don't automatically believe the Bible's true. That's intimidating for me. You know why? Because I automatically believe the Bible's true. I've been trained to do that. I've been convinced. I, I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me who has convinced me, absolutely, this is true. I struggle with that. Philip here, he's not intimidated by that. This guy doesn't even know what he's reading. He says, who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? Philip's not intimidated. You know why? Because he knew what he was talking about. He's able to use this guy's question to then springboard and launch into a talk about Jesus. He knows the Scriptures, and he knows what he needs to know about the Scriptures, and he's ready for whatever God brought his way, which is the second element that we see here, that we exist also to equip Christ followers for life and for service. Philip was equipped. He had been trained. He had been practicing. He had been brought up in the faith to know what he needed to know and to be able to do the things he needed to do, and you see that in his interaction. He doesn't miss a beat. The guy says, I don't get it. I don't understand. Can you help me? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. 
Let me tell you what this scripture is all about. He's equipped for that. The statistics are obviously overwhelming. As I just read, Christians on the whole, and we could bring in other studies to show us this, don't read their Bibles, don't pray regularly, don't lead their families spiritually, they don't have unshakable marriages, they don't avoid the traps of addictions, they don't necessarily live profoundly different from the rest of the world, and many don't experience inexplicable joy and peace that the Scripture promises. We need to be equipped and trained for just life itself. That's the stuff of life. I think a lot of that is because we just don't know how. Nobody's ever taught us. Nobody's ever sat down and trained us and helped us to understand how do you live this life with Jesus in it. We also struggle, of course, with making wise decisions. We struggle with each new stage of life. Isn't it interesting that once you grow up, you still don't know any more than you knew before? (laughs) Isn't that the truth? People tell you to act your age, and you only got a year to figure it out, and then you got to start all over again. That's hard. Goodness gracious, it's hard to know how to live. And the responsibility of the church and mature believers is to help those who are coming behind us learn how to live. You say, should we really do that? Should we really talk to them about life? Absolutely. We don't just teach Sunday school lessons. We teach them as they apply to how we live daily with Jesus. We struggle with each new stage of life, with contemporary issues in our country and our world. We don't know how to handle half of it. Let's be honest. We don't know what to do. This isn't about beating us up, but I'll be honest with you, this is about realizing what we've got to teach to our rising generations. This is it. We've got to equip them for life and for all that they're going to face. And it doesn't happen automatically. We've got to be intentional. It's hard. It's hard and it's uncomfortable. We don't like it. We just wish they'd figure it out. They're not going to figure it out unless we are intentional toward them as parents, as a church, as grandparents, as mentors. We've got to be intentional or it will never happen. We equip them for life, but we also equip them for service, to utilize their spiritual gifts, to do something meaningful, to chase their God-ordained dreams for God's glory. I read an article recently that talked about why young people stay in the church. You ever read those articles about why they all leave? You know, 85 or 150%. You know, it just depends on the study. How many of them leave the church, you know, when they turn 18? Like, you know, they just can't wait to get out the door. Well, this guy wrote an article about why do they stay. It's pretty insightful. That was helpful. You know, I've, I've read a million articles on why they leave. That doesn't help me. Why do they stay? One of the points that he made out of three that he made were, was that they stay because they've been equipped and not just entertained. Here's what he says. Youth leaders especially need to keep reading the words of Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 to themselves. Christ gave the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Christ gives us, teachers, to the church, not for entertainment, encouragement, examples, or even friendship primarily. He gives us to the church to equip the saints to do gospel ministry in order that the church might be built up. Here's what he says as a youth pastor, as a youth leader. And I would apply this to all of us as church members, as those who have young people in our midst and in our lives. If I have not equipped the students in my ministry to share the gospel, disciple a younger believer, and lead a Bible study, then I have not fulfilled my calling to them, no matter how good my sermons are. We pray for conversion, and certainly we should, but after conversion, it is our Christ-given duty to help fan into flame a faith that serves, leads, teaches, and grows. If our students leave high school without Bible reading habits, Bible study skills, and strong examples of discipleship and prayer, we have lost them. 
We have entertained, not equipped them. And it may indeed, he says, be time to panic. Forget your youth programs for a second. Are we sending out, listen to this, are we sending out from our ministries the kinds of students who will show up to college in a different state, join a church, and begin doing the work of gospel ministry there without ever being asked? Are we equipping them to that end, or are we merely giving them a good time while they're with us? We don't need youth group junkies, he says. We need to be growing, growing up church men and church women who are equipped to lead, to teach, and to serve. Put your youth ministry strategies aside, he says. This is great. And look at that 16-year-old young man and ask, how can I spend four more years with this kid, helping him become the best church deacon and sixth grade Sunday school class teacher he can be in ten years? That changes our view on raising up young people. Children all the way up. Not just about youth ministry. You realize the opportunity we have there? This isn't a downer. <laughs> that is a refocusing mindset that ought to set us on fire. It ought to absolutely change the way we look at what we're doing in every capacity from youth all the way up and all the way down. That ought to inspire you. I mean that. I'm not here to beat you up. That ought to inspire you. To say, what a great opportunity. That's why I'm doing this. This is my purpose. That's why I'm leading these kids. That's why I'm teaching this class. That's why we're trying to do a racer day just to touch the university. That's why we do it. We engage, we exist rather, to engage in relationship with God and others and to equip Christ's followers for life and service. And then we see Philip tell this man about Jesus. So Philip, verse 35, proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus. Some of your versions say he preached Jesus to him. Beginning from that scripture. That's Philip's pattern wherever he went. To big crowds and to individuals. To people he knew and to strangers he just met. He used any and every God-ordained opportunity to begin a conversation about why the man needed Jesus. God sent him to people on the outside. And it was difficult. It was exciting. It was surprising at times. But You know, ministry when done God's way is hard. You know why? Because Satan doesn't like it. I mean, if everything is just smooth sailing, we're probably not doing anything. No, we're probably not. If ministry is just as easy as it can be, we're probably not scratching the surface of what God wants us to do. But when it gets tough, when we've got to get our hands dirty a little bit, I think that's where God's in it. And that's the kind of ministry Philip did. He could have opted for these Samaritans, the first part of this chapter, sit on his hands, do nothing, just get mad at them for being Samaritans and not knowing Jesus. Those dirty Samaritans. I don't like them anyway. He didn't do that. You know, he could have said, um, Lord, the chariot, that's kind of weird. I'm not going up to the chariot. I'll preach to the big crowd. I'm not going to the chariot. That's odd. Who runs up to a chariot? Nobody's around. It's weird. I'm not doing it. But Philip loved Jesus, and as a result, he grew in his love for those people that Jesus loved. The mission of the early church was to make disciples, to be witnesses, and tell the story of Jesus for the purpose of seeing other people transformed for all eternity. And that mission hasn't changed. And it won't change until Jesus comes back. So the third element of this that we see in Philip's life is that we exist to evangelize the lost locally and globally. We exist to evangelize the lost locally and globally. The people in the early church had some great advantages to this. During this time, there was what was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which gave really, maybe it was forced protection, but it gave protection to those Christians who were serving as missionaries. They didn't have to worry about their safety. You know, by and large, in our country, we don't either. 
for the most part. And there, there was also a great road system back then. Just means of communication and travel. Do you realize the power of the internet and social media for the sake of the gospel? I don't know if you realize. Some of you, maybe that's not your thing. That's okay. But for others, you say, I can take advantage of that. We have great means of communication today. The world is much smaller than it's ever been. They had a common language during that time. You know what the common language of the world is today? It's the one I'm speaking to you right now. What makes it possible for Elm Grove Church to reach our community? You realize we're situated on a state highway? I live right across the street. I hear the state highway. All hours of the night, these trucks going. It's a well-traveled road, and here we sit on the hill, perched right up. It's a great location. You know what we've also done? We've purchased some land over on the new state highway. Do you realize when they built this church, this is amazing to me. We were talking with some guys on Sunday night about this. When they built this church in the 1930s, you know why they did it? You know what the main road was? That one out there. You know where the original location of the church used to be? It's a... Right over there we bought property on the new main road. It's just amazing to see what God is doing. I don't know what will happen. But I tell you what, this church has always been about let's put ourselves in position, whether it's physically, spiritually, whatever it is, to reach the community around us. Let's keep doing it. We have a great commitment here from lots of people who show up every single week to attend church and to serve in some capacity. And I, I want to help engage and equip those people who are here say, I don't know what to do, but I want to do something. <laughs> Come and talk to me. I don't have the answer. We're going to figure it out. You know, we have a great religious culture in our area. We live in maybe not the, the buckle of the Bible Belt, but we live in a pretty good Bible Belt kind of place. You know, people are not generally, generally unfriendly to Christians and to churches around here. It's a great opportunity. We don't have that battle to fight. And we have certainly many connections in the community. I look around this room and I see so many people who work in strategic locations and in strategic places and who are connected in strategic ways. And we have not yet, I don't even think, tapped into the very beginning of what God can do through the connections just that we have when we leave this place. The early church was motivated, as we need to be, by a sense of gratitude for what Jesus had done. By a sense of being commissioned by Jesus, which we are. By a sense of responsibility to share their faith, which we have. And by a sense of concern for those who are lost and will die and go to hell apart from Jesus Christ and His saving grace on the cross. There's a book called Evangelism in the Early Church, and author Michael Green, he says it this way, If you believe that outside of Christ there is no hope, which is true, hear me this morning, apart from Jesus Christ you cannot go to heaven. You will not go to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. There is one way, and it is given through His death and His resurrection. That is it. And the grace is received only by faith in Him is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sin. That's the only way. If you believe that outside of Christ there is no hope, which is what we believe, it is impossible to possess an atom of human love and kindness without being gripped with a desire to bring people to this one way of salvation. If we truly believe that then we must be, we have to be, we ought to be the kind of people who will not rest until we see the people that we care about impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I referenced those statistics at the beginning. We're losing ground. But we don't need to look anywhere else but God's Word to figure out how to address it. He's already given us the mission. and It's always been the same and it always will be. We exist to engage in relationship with God and others 
to equip Christ followers for life and for service, and to evangelize the lost locally and globally. That's the mission for our area, for Murray State University, for wherever you are each day. That's the mission for our children and our youth and our college students, and I believe for our entire church. So our response, we simply need to submit to it. We need to do whatever is necessary to achieve it, and we need to ask God to help us do it. Because without Him, it's impossible. I want to close our time this morning, just very simply, with praying for Murray State, our great mission field that God has given us. So here's what I'd like to do. I'll explain it to you up front, that way there are no surprises and you know what's going to happen. In just a moment, those who work or attend the university, work at or attend the university, I'm going to ask you not to embarrass you. I won't make you give a speech, I promise. I'm just going to ask you to stand in just a moment. And then we're going to have some folks gather around you, and I'm going to pray for you. And then we're all going to stand, and we're going to sing the first two verses of I have decided to follow Jesus, and then you'll be dismissed. How's that for a plan? Sound good? All right. Let, let me, if you are a student or an employee at the university, I would like for you, if you would, to stand this morning. And you can go ahead. And, and then folks who are around you, if you would, and you may have to move a little bit. And folks, let me tell you, it's okay. You can move. Somebody around you, three or four people, if you would, surround each person. Just put a hand on their shoulder. Let's go ahead and do that at this time. If you want to get up and move, that's totally fine. If you're physically able or you just need to stretch, then you go right ahead. But place a hand on the shoulder of one of these students or employees. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then we will close with the first couple of verses of I have decided to follow Jesus, and then we'll be dismissed right after that. Let's join our hearts in prayer. God, we believe you've spoken to us through your word this morning. We believe, Lord, the mission that you ordained at the very beginning of what we know as Christianity, we believe it's not changed. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would put us again on that mission. We repent where we failed you. We confess to you, Lord, our apathy, our lack of concern. And so, Lord, this morning we pray specifically for Murray State University. We thank you for the students who are here. We thank you for the employees, the faculty, the staff. We thank you for all of those. Lord, for the students, I pray that you would solidify their faith in Christ. That in their lonely moments, in their difficult moments, that your Holy Spirit would speak directly to them. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church that takes the first step and the first move toward them. And Lord, you would use us to see many students be equipped and evangelized for the sake of the gospel. I pray that you would make the students who are involved in various campus ministries, who are the believers on campus, I pray, Lord, that you would make them very bold and confident, that you would give them favor on that campus and that through them you would change it forever. I pray, Lord, for those who work at Murray State, who may feel as if they're just doing a job, but Lord, may you give them a fresh vision for this year. For every interaction they have with co-workers and students, I pray, Lord, that you would show them those divine appointments down those desert roads to nowhere. And Lord, may this year be different, not just plugging away once again, but Lord, a fresh vision. Lord, whether they're just getting started or they're closing in on their, the end of their time, God, whatever it is, I pray that you'd inspire them, encourage them. And may we be a church, Lord, that, that loves on those who are loving on your students. Lord, remind us of why we exist. 
We thank You for the opportunity to engage in relationship with You and others. We pray, Lord, You'd help us to equip those who follow You for life and for service, and that, Lord, You would enable us and give us the inspiration and the challenge and the oomph that it takes to evangelize those who are lost locally and globally. Thank You, Lord, for Murray State. We pray for a great revival there. And may it start right here at Elm Grove. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're still sitting, won't you stand with us? And we'll close as we're led by Danny and Randy in the first two verses of I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, and then you'll be dismissed.